Hey everybody, and hello humans. This is Not A Robot's Marvel Comics Weekly Review Show. This week, we are covering in full review Silk issue number one, Avengers Curse of the Man-Thing number one, Black Cat number four, X-Men number 19, Beta Ray Bill number one, and a shout out to Guardians of the Galaxy number 12 from last week with lightning reviews at the end for X-Men Legends number two, US Agent number four, and Ghost Rider King in Black number one. My name is Kirk, and whosoever hold this microphone, if he be worthy, shall possess the power to podcast. And as always, I've got some amazing co-hosts here with me. Brandon. And there came a day, a day when the greatest comic fans came together, and they were known as Not-A-Robot Marvel Reviews. (laughs) Awesome. We're here to summarize, analyze, and editorialize every issue we cover without worrying about what publishers think. We are on Twitter at Not-A-Robot Comics, and I'm on Twitter at Kirk Hopko. Uh, and we answer all show mail sent to notarobotcomics at gmail.com. The next part is dedicated to those that support us with their hard-earned money, but that's not the only way you can. Like, subscribe, download, and share our episodes as much as possible. It helps get the word out, and that's the best kind of advertising. Now it's time to say a big thank you to the humans who help support this podcast. They subscribe to our Patreon, with tiers starting at just $1 a month, so that we can make sure we keep bringing you more content. This is the Not A Robot Must Be A Human shout-out and roll call. And that shout-out goes to our humans, Weird Science Jim, Blue Mondays, Hollister, and Roch Crockett. A big salute to all of you and an ever bigger thank you. So what are you waiting for? Sign up now and show us you might just be a human after all and get a shout-out on the Not A Robot Must Be A Human roll call. All right, Brandon, what's new this week? Keeping up with, uh, with Falcon and Winter Soldier. Very nice a pleasant surprise to see sharon carter return this week i don't know if you caught the new episode i have yes i I enjoyed it quite a bit oh yeah and it looks like they're showing i keep wanting to call him u.s agent just because i know him as u.s agent but uh, but john walker starting to crack a little bit i I expect them to kind of develop that a little bit more see him kind of being a bit more aggressive a bit more psychopathic so i'm i'm into it me too. Yeah. And I definitely, I feel maybe, maybe I'm not giving them a credit, enough credit, but maybe I'm thinking it's a little obvious at this point that they're showing us the pressure of what it takes to be Captain America when you are sure you're an incredibly talented Marine, but you're still just yeah. only human. And we're, we're looking at a guy who's having trouble living up to that legacy. And I think he's about to get his butt kicked by the flag smashers. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I sense it coming. Just because, like, it's exactly like you said, it takes a certain heart and a certain, I don't know, a, a certain specialness, that's a word, to, to be Captain America. Obviously, I don't know that it's entirely exclusive to Steve Rogers, given that we've seen Captain America be different people in the past. But, but yeah, no, I just, I, I think you're right. It's like, it's like the pressures you have to live with. So kind of seeing him start to crack under pressure, it's, it's just been really interesting. And then like this new cynical Sharon Carter is like really weird just because like, I don't know, she seemed a lot more upbeat in the last two movies, even though one of them was literally the superheroes fighting the superheroes. But even still, uh, just a little, just, just a little, a little too cynical at times. Where she's just like, eh, screw the capes. It's all just bullshit. Right? Yeah, it's it's definitely been a ride. I like New Zemo. I like that they're teasing what is what seems to me like 
John Walker going to the power broker to yeah to level the playing field. And I also want to you mentioned, you know, it takes a certain heart to be Captain America and I saw this on the internet and I just want to shout it out here. Someone pointed out that Steve Rogers, if you're familiar with the the first Captain America movie, Steve Rogers is who Stanley Tucci picked to be Captain America, but John Walker is who Tommy Lee Jones would have picked to be Captain America. Yeah, yeah, actually, yeah, that's 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 accurate. And it, and I mean, I think they've done a a solid enough job not showing John is like super evil right off the bat because I think that would be too obvious. And I and I I appreciate them at least trying to humanize him as much as you can, but. You know, because, like, obviously, if you were chosen for that role, you know, it'd be it'd be hard to turn down something like that, and it'd be hard to kind of have to deal with the legacy and all that. But, you know, I'm just, like I said, I think I'm just interested in the trajectory of where John Walker is going right now. I think that's where I'm most interested in. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, obviously, a little more stuff with Zemo. That'll definitely be interesting. So, a lot of good stuff. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, what about you? Uh, well, outside of Falcon and uh, Winter Soldier, the only other news that I've got, and I guess it's been a few weeks. This this happened a few weeks ago, so it'll be old news for mm-hmm. most of our li- listeners. But Clint Barton was added to the uh, the Avengers console game a few weeks ago. I saw that uh, in in the latest update, and as one of the eight fans of that video game, I have to say that he plays. <laughs> So much, so much fun to play. Really? Yeah, I heard there. I heard there have been some some rough spots with the game. I'm not. I'm not really sure what's going on. I don't have it. It's I. The best way I can describe it is it is an absolutely excellent superhero adventure, mm-hmm. where they then tacked on this poorly thought out and poorly fleshed out Destiny esque loot campaign system oh that sucks yeah so you play through this (laughs) you play through this wonderful story as kamala reuniting the avengers and each avenger plays amazingly they are so much fun kamala iron man widow they all have completely unique abilities controls and you feel like an avenger i gotta say the combat in this game is incredible yeah, I wondered how like a character like Cap would handle, you know, with the shield and everything. They they built it really seamlessly that like mm-hmm. you can go onto in a sort of an offensive mode or a defensive mode, but also his shield effortlessly can be synced into combos, so you really can just dodge over one guy, punch another guy, and then do a quick turn and whip your shield into two other people. Oh, that sounds fun. It is so much fun. And you can use Thor's hammer to pin people to walls and then call it back through other people. Mm-hmm. Like it's the game feels unique and great. No matter who you're playing, the two characters they've added since launch, Kate Bishop and Clint Barton, both Hawkeye, both play completely different. Mm-hmm. And I'm having a ton of fun with the game. The biggest thing was they didn't have enough content in the game for this games as a service destiny model that they put a lot of like stock into what we'd be playing. Yeah. Cause the campaign ends, I would say a little shorter than I'd like, but it was still a decent, like 12 to 15 hour campaign. And then, but after that it goes into just sort of this like weekly themed missions. But the problem was 
there's only like three types of enemies in the game. Mm-hmm. There's taskmasters, mercenaries, aims, dudes, and the, uh, what are they called? The super adaptoids. Yeah. And then as far as like big villains, there's, uh, there's Modoc, Taskmaster, and Abomination. That's a little, that's a little light. It, it, I, it, I guess I would have expected more from an Avengers game. That's the thing. It, it was missing that. So in the story, I didn't really notice the absence yeah. of this content. I was like, oh, that was a fun story. I played 15 mm-hmm. hours, played a couple hours as each character. It was refreshing and fun. Then they yeah. were like, play these huge missions over and over with a very low enemy variety. And every six missions or so you're going to fight a boss and it's going to be one of these three bosses. Mm-hmm. And that's where the game really stumbled was they just didn't fill in enough content to justify that aspect of the game. Yeah. That's, that really sucks. But the Clint Barton update also adds in maestro to fight and he's, that's a lot of fun. Oh yeah. Like the, the future hold. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, so I'm I'm going to keep standing the game that the press came down harder on this game than I think it deserved. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't I didn't hear good things, but I mean, I haven't like the last I think PS4 superhero game I played was Spider-Man, not the not the new Miles Morales Spider-Man, though I did really want to play that, but the, That one's really good. The, yeah, no, the PS4 Spider-Man, everybody played that game. That game is so good. So I think I was I think I was just a little worried that like my expectations were going to be let down. And also I remember seeing the E3 trailer and I was kind of like eh, I was a little on the on the fence about it. I saw the Kate Bishop DLC trailer and that one was exciting enough where I was like maybe I'll pick it up at some point. But I don't know. I, I think I think I'll have to pick it up at some point just out of curiosity. But it's mm-hmm. it's good to hear that you appreciate it. I do. I I appreciate what it's doing, and I do hope it it weathers the storm. Yeah, I I knew it was in trouble. It had lukewarm uh, responses to it, but it honestly, when you if you forget the the destiny aspect that they're pushing for, and just think about it for that core story, I think it's yeah. definitely worth picking up on sale just to play that story, mm. and then to come back once they've added more content more enemy types, more bosses. We're getting Black Panther later this year. We're getting the Red Room update later this year. Oh, nice. So, I'm excited to see that. Now that we've talked about TV show and video games, I suppose that this is a comics podcast and we can... (laughs) I suppose so. I suppose it's time to get into it. All right. So, I'm going to start us off with Silk issue number one, brought to us by writer Maureen Gu, artist Takeshi Miyazawa, Color by Ian Herring and lettering by Ariana Mar. Uh, in Silk number one, we see the start of a new arc with uh, with Silk, sort of coming to terms in, with her 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 new life since we last left her. She's mm-hmm. she's living with her brother. Uh, she's just getting a job as a reporter uh, for J. Jonah Jameson's sort of print and digital newspaper threats and menaces yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you're reading the the nick spencer's spider-man that's coming out right now it, it kind of go into that a little bit more Mm-hmm. and she she's a reporter for that and uh she's she's struggling with what it means to be a, a superhero and also with sort of some of the weight that she's carrying from also being essentially a trained assassin mm-hmm and she investigates a a murder scene 
and then writes a newspaper article on it that gets oddly enough jonah jameson in trouble and she has to swoop in as silk to save him and he ends up offering a gig as her his bodyguard and it's a very weird side to jameson in this one he uh because you know she's wearing the spider logo but he doesn't treat her with the same disdain that he treats spider-man oh yeah yeah no they're kind of like friends although i guess J. Jonah Jameson's, you know, like a friend of Spider-Man now. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> so it's it's a weird it's a weird look for him, and they really play him off as sort of the. I, I'm gonna use this word affectionately, but <laughs> sort of the, the boomer uncle. Yeah, yeah. In most of this, he just says things that are sort of agedly slightly inappropriate, and they they all just tell him straight to his face, like Jonah, you can't talk like that anymore. <laughs> which which is cool i guess like it's a it's a weird look you know you know you have this this old character saying things that we know older people say yeah and then we have the young people just straight up calling them on it like come on yeah no that's not <laughs> that's not that great uh and then at the end of this issue it is revealed that the murder she investigated was done by a sort of demonic monster that i know i'm supposed to recognize but i didn't it, I, I don't know if that's, I mean, yeah, I, I didn't like flag anyone in my brain on who that's supposed to be. So, okay. Maybe um, it is a new threat. Yeah. I, think, I feel like it might be something, something new, but sort of the bulk of the, the issue, uh, we just spend time with her getting used to her new life. We see her busts crime at the beginning and that, and then a short fight against some would be toughs in the subway. Mm-hmm. And then a lot of, a lot of time spent at threats and menaces sort of fleshing out what that looks like and sort of forecasting some tensions between the young trendy side of the thing and J Jonah Jameson sort of lending it some credibility. Yeah. Which I guess like, I don't really have a lot of exposure to what the current publishing journalism sphere is right now, but I have to assume it is filled with several analogs to this of, sort of these older titles and names needing to give their brand to younger pilots. Yeah. Well, from my memory, it was like Jonah had been recruited to threats and menaces by Nora Winters basically because she was like, well, you were the best in the biz when print was still relevant, but print is kind of dead now. So why don't you just use your brains and apply that to like the digital age. But you can see he's he's definitely very out of touch with that. Mm-hmm. Just like having to put up with, you know, kind of like millennials every single day. And clearly he's not used to that whole thing. And it, it just makes me wonder like what's going on at the Daily Bugle right now. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I guess my I don't know. As as a millennial, I always find it weird when comics like try to spend a lot of time like name dropping millennials and cuz I can't tell if they're if they're trying to win points by being like, "Hey, look, it's the millennials." Yeah. Or if they're trying to make fun of the millennials to score points off some other <laughs> agenda, like yeah. it, it it never feels exactly right, especially since Gen Z is 18 now or yeah. 
older than that even. So it's like, I can't figure out who these jibes are for. <laughs> yeah, someone, someone, I guess. It's probably a mix of both. It's probably, you know, someone looking to poke fun at millennials and someone, I guess, just trying to make it feel more relevant in comics or something like that. I'm, I'm not familiar with this this writer so i don't know if she um is a millennial or someone who's older but mm-hmm. uh, my guess would be it, from the writing it seems a little bit on the younger side so yeah um, and they're definitely taking shots at the the older generation too so it is it is a two-way street it just feels yeah. it always just feels a little surreal to me mm-hmm. but i enjoyed this and i'm looking forward to seeing the rest of silk's outing uh, I ended up giving this issue a 7.5 out of 10. Yeah, I felt... Uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, go ahead. Uh, how did you? Yeah. What were your thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I, I had a, a similar feeling where I thought it was a really fun, cute issue. And I, I really liked the, the art. Mm-hmm. I know that some people may not be a big fan of Takeshi Miyazawa because it can look a little bit too cartoony, but I, I think it works perfectly for this issue and i kirk you might know a little bit more about this than i do but i was reading like the little prologue that they have before each issue and it mentioned that she had been an agent of atlas i didn't know that i hadn't been reading that series so the last time i remember seeing her she was with like spider-man in new york city for the whole kindred thing but i didn't know what else she was doing Mm-hmm. Yeah, when when War of the Realms happened, they did a a five issue run on Agents of Atlas, mm-hmm. where uh, Jimmy Woo got to put together another Agents of Atlas team, mm-hmm. and it was a a team highly focused on Eastern Asia representation, Japanese, mm-hmm. Korean, Philippines. Like it was a very representational team of that area. Oh, nice. And so it was a lot of unique heroes, a lot of heroes that don't get a lot of limelight. And I really enjoyed that run. And then it, after that, the five issues, it did sort of just kind of go away. And we hadn't really seen much of some of the other key members. I'm not even sure what Jimmy Woo has been doing since that run. I'm not, uh, I, like Amadeus Cho just barely showed up in the end of the champions run here. So it's, (laughs) yeah. So there is, there's been a little, like it was not really established whether or not like that was going to be a long running or like they were going to return to that team Mm -hmm. in the, uh, in the long run. But, but yeah, she was a member and it was a good little run there. If you want to read five quick issues, but two of them are war of the realms tie in. So they, there's a shaky start. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, no, I just, I, I didn't know that, but that's, that's really interesting. But yeah, no, I, I had a really fun time with this series, and it's nice to catch up with, uh, with Silk after everything with Kindred, and, uh, and, and definitely it was nice to see her kind of having a little back and forth with Jonah. I think that was some of the more entertaining parts of the issue for me, just seeing her working at Threats and Menaces. So yeah, it was just it was a really fun, really solid issue. I really like the artwork, and I'm I'm interested to see where it's going. So I gave this one a seven point two five out of ten. Awesome. Moving on to Avengers: Curse of the Man Thing, issue number one by writer Steve Orlando, artist Francesco Mobili, 
coloring by Guru Effects and lettering by Clayton Cowles. Uh, I'll hand it over to Brandon for the summary on this one. Yeah, absolutely. So basically, this issue starts with we begin in the substratum, which apparently is the underground lab of the horticulture. And for those who are reading the X Men books right now, the horticulture is kind of like the the golden oldies collective of eco terrorists <laughs> is the best way I can describe it. But yeah, we catch up on the horticulture, and basically, they're kind of screaming at their. I guess, great niece or one of them, uh, one of the members of the, the horticulture named Augusta is, is kind of like having a little bit of a, of a screaming match with her great niece because she's basically concocted a new plan that she believes will eliminate um, all life on Earth, which the goal of the horticulture, at least as they see it, is not to eliminate life, but to contain it so that it doesn't become, you know, un, uncontrolled. And that goes for humans as well as mutants, as the mutants uh, learned when they first encountered the horticulture. But basically, one of the big problems that Harriet is having, or as she calls herself, uh, the harrower, is that she really wants to incorporate magic, particularly the magic of one Ted Salas, a.k.a. the Man-Thing. And I was not very familiar with Man-Thing. I, I don't know, I just kind of saw him as a Swamp Thing ripoff, and I was more interested <laughs> in Swamp Thing anyway. But I think, like, Howard the Duck was in his series at one point. But that's about all I know about Man-Thing. But basically, uh, Harriet feels like they've kind of abandoned her. And, you know, they've abandoned their mission. If they're not going to help her, she's just going to do it on her own. So she goes to Citrusville, Florida, where she uh, we are introduced to the Man-Thing, who's kind of going to save someone who's been trapped but we quickly learned that that was all a setup and basically she was using this trapped man as kind of prey knowing that the man thing would come and that she'd be able to take his husk and basically remove it and use it for her goals so that's how we begin chapter one chapter two uh as this issue is broken down into three parts is kind of revolves around the avengers investigating wildlife that has sprouted up across major cities uh, across the world. So there's one at Wakanda, there's one in London, there's one in Sydney, there's one in Los Angeles, and Black Panther is kind of coordinating the Avengers to intercept uh, each of the, I guess, giant growths that have sprouted up to basically make sure that they're not causing any damage because so far when people have touched them, they've started to catch on fire and they suspect it's because of something magical in origin, but, you know, we're... Basically, they want the Avengers to investigate. So we focus for a little bit on Captain America and She-Hulk in uh, New York, uh, and they're basically trying to intercept because some creatures have sprouted from the growths and they're attacking citizens and everything, and... That's when Captain America notices that there are spores that are also sprouting from the growths and one of them happens to catch on his shield and it begins to grow and it kind of envelops him in vines and we see him kind of awaken in like this pool and he's not really sure where he is uh, and that's the point where he is attacked by Captain America's or I guess super soldiers of the past. So we see Newt, we see... William Burnside, who I believe was the Grand Director back in 
the old Captain America comics and then the anti-Captain America. And then basically they're kind of harassing him saying, you know, you have kind of forgotten about us. You are this man out of time and yet you've kind of abandoned us and tried to forget about us. And so basically they're going back and forth and we cut between the Avengers trying to take out the growths and everything. Uh, so that's most of chapter two. Whereas chapter three, and we catch up with Harriet for a little bit, and she basically is just saying that, you know, she's trying to clear the board and, and basically set the stage for, I guess, uh, ecological domination or something like that. But yeah, basically the rest of the issue is just kind of the Avengers fighting off the growths and trying to contain everything and... We see Captain Marvel kind of get attacked by the spores, but she's enveloped. She's just turned on fire and I guess is able to control it in some way. But really the, the big reveal of the issue is when Captain America is able to meet the consciousness of Dr. Ted Salas, who is mm -hmm. um, inhabiting the consciousness of Man-Thing that is still like kind of clinging on, even though the husk has been removed uh, and has been manipulated by Harriet, a.k.a. the Harrower. And so Captain America and Dr. Salas are kind of going back and forth with Cap basically saying he wants him to help contain the problem. He knows that they have a connection. And, you know, Ted's basically just like, I, you know, I wasn't, that's not who I am. That's not what I do. And they talk a little bit about, you know, how he found a way to create the serum because apparently in the Man-Thing origin, one of the main catalysts of him becoming Man-Thing was his attempts to recreate the uh, super soldier serum and kind of how that mixed with like mystical plant life to create, you know, the swamp thing instead. But, damn it. <laughs> the man thing instead. That was, that <laughs> was not on purpose, I swear. But anyway, that's basically when he reveals, you know, he wasn't trying to remake the super soldier serum. He was just trying to do it to help, you know, the people closest to him because he basically never understood how to make the formula and he never had any knowledge of how to create it at all so that's how our issue ends i actually had a really fun time with this issue i i saw a couple reviews saying it was kind of cheesy and villain of the week but i don't know something just kind of worked for me i was familiar with steve orlando's work from justice league of america and martian manhunter and those are books that i definitely enjoyed and I, I guess this is his Marvel debut, which is, is nice. Because, like I said, I thought it was a pretty solid job. But I thought, really, the standout was the artwork. I wasn't familiar with this artist, Francesco Mobili, in any grand sense. I'd seen him do, like, an issue of Daredevil once. And it was, it was fine, but I wasn't really paying attention to it all that much. I was really amazed at, like, some of the panels uh, that were done in this, particularly one of them where it's just, like, you know, Cap is, is standing in the pool and it's like the shadows of all the, you know, forgotten Captain Americas and they're just outlined. It's really great. And yeah, I have to give credit to the art team, both uh, pencils and colors, because I think they did a really great job all around. But yeah, it was a, a surprisingly solid read. It's not like I was eagerly awaiting this one, but I just kind of checked it out and, and I, I was pleasantly surprised. So I, I actually gave this one an 8.25 out of 10. Oh, awesome. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I enjoyed this issue with Man-Thing. It's 
The man thing, anytime he's brought up in comics that I read, because I don't ever read anything that he's like a big part of. Yeah. He always ends up being sort of this, this element of the strange and unexplained mm-hmm. that everyone is a little familiar with. They'll just drop him into an arc of the Avengers or an arc of the champions or an arc of whoever's around and they'll all kind of know who the man thing is, but they won't really know how to deal with him. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of a theme here in them, like choosing to spend a bit more time on it in this issue and, or with man thing and explain sort of, you know, the person inside the man thing, because they, they really never spend any time on him in the issues that I've read. Mm -hmm. Uh, I, I thought that was interesting. Uh, I did find it, you said cheesy villain of the week. I wouldn't decry it that hard, but I did find the presence of the harrower was more of the cheesy villain of the week. Yeah, no, that was, that was more of what I meant. I mean, I didn't even mean that in like a really like derogatory sense. I just, I could see why someone might find it a little, Mm. you know, a little cheesy. And, and to be honest, and this is just like a, a pet complaint of mine. Mm. Horticulture is not working for me. <laughs> really? Oh, bummer. I'm loving them. Okay, I, I don't love know. it's so it's I love so them as written. for me. I just don't yeah. know if I love them as actual villains or whatever <laughs> antagonists or whatever role that they're they're filling cuz they're not strictly bad. Yeah. They just they show up in the occasional issue and screw with whoever's around, but they're not like outright trying to win. They yeah. they've got their own goals and they're fine, but like, I don't know. They showed up in an Empire tie-in, and that was probably why I have such a rough like. <laughs> I like, get that. When they were in the X Men, they were fine. It was the the X Men tie-in on Genosha as part of Empire, where it was just Genosian zombies and Kotadi, and now Horticulture was here, and they're brainwashing uh, Archangel. Angel. Yeah. or angel it was getting really cheesy for me and i'm like okay we've got this <laughs> strange golden girls obsessed with young superheroes obsessed with stealing plants from the x-men i was just lo- it was losing me fast yeah <laughs> so may- maybe i just need to read some of the better s- issues again to like remind myself that they're not just that one tie-in <laughs> yeah i mean they're, yeah they're still relatively new so it'll be interesting to see you know where they might go but i, I think they they definitely work for me just because, like, I mean, I feel like X-Men has always had the strangest villains. Like, someone mm. like Arcade, whose motivation is just, like... I don't really know if he has any chief motivation except for screwing with people in, in you know, murder worlds. And playing with games and that sort of thing. So, like, it just kind of it felt, like, in line with the strange, weird X-Men villains. So, maybe, maybe that's why I don't mind so much, but... Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I can see how... Especially when, you know, some of those strange and weird villains are now becoming, you know, protagonists rather than just antagonists. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm looking at Nanny and Orphan Maker here now as... Oh, yeah. I was thinking just that. As mainstays in a comic that I'm somehow enjoying. <laughs> <laughs> but, no, I ended up giving this issue a 7 out of 10. I enjoyed it, but sort of... I don't know. Maybe because Man-Thing is always sort of mysterious, I almost feel like I could have that this issue would have been just as impactful if something with man thing was just going wrong inexplicably. Yeah. Like if, if we didn't have 
the the tie-in to the harrower at the beginning and they left that sort of at large and then black panther figures out oh this is the man thing what's going on oh yeah yeah that would have been interesting especially because man thing always is sort of inexplicable and weird yeah i don't know i just feel felt like they started it with horde culture horticulture and harrower and i don't know maybe maybe i'm off base here it just felt like it cheapened part of it i'm not sure oh yeah no that's okay yeah no yeah no i think it i think it, yeah it just kind of worked for me because like i i didn't i didn't really have any strong feelings toward man thing so i wasn't expecting much and then i i was a fan of the horticulture so to kind of see i, I guess this is a newer character because i had never heard of you know, the harrower and any connection to the horticulture. I thought it was just like the golden oldies, but yeah, no, I, I, I think it just, it, yeah, definitely worked for me. And then I think the artwork definitely elevated it in a lot of places. So yeah, no, I, I know I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the next issue, mm-hmm. which is going to be the, the Spider-Man tie in. And I believe it's only three parts. So yeah, it'll, it'll be done pretty quickly. All right. Moving on to black cat issue. Number four by writer, Jed McKay, Artist Nina Vacueva, color by Brian Reber, and lettering by Farron Delgado. Uh, Black Cat issue number four is told entirely through the perspective of Queen Cat, mm-hmm. uh, one of the Hob heroes slash experiments of the Hobgoblin from a few years back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she is sort of going through an identity crisis. She, she was built by sort of a madman. Uh, her last identity has fallen away. She doesn't remember who that person was. And she's sort of living a life of, well, of sort of not having an identity of, yeah. you know, working for catering companies that aren't going to look into her her address too closely. And then she, she wants to be a superhero. She, she worked with uh, some superheroes recently and she realizes that she's, she's proven herself that she can do good and that that is what she wants to do with her identity now. And, but part of her identity crisis stems from the black cat, someone who she views as a villain, which is not incorrect. Mm-hmm. but is always with black cat, you know, it's always more complicated than it seems. And so the, the bulk of this issue is her tracking the black cat on a variety of her capers. And she's, she's getting away with stuff in broad daylight. She's, you know, she's the black cat. She's a master thief and she's, she's off pulling her capers and queen cat is following her and, we get a, a brief window where she touches base with one of the other Hob heroes. Uh, I don't have his name written down, but, uh, and sort of have a little impromptu therapy session to shed some more light on who the queen cat is or who isn't she. Cause she doesn't really recognize the person she's, she started as. Yeah. And so then she, she drops in on one of the black cats op- operations. She gets into a tussle and, uh, fights one of the the goons working for Black Cat, and, and steals some of uh, the Black Cat's heist. And then the issue ends with Black Cat dropping in on her, paying her a visit, and sort of one upping her. Incomplete, 
she outsmarted her in terms of tracking her down and seems to be more than capable of taking her in a straight fight. And but then kind of tells Queen Cat that Queen Cat's identity doesn't need to be weakened by the presence of Black Cat. It can in fact yeah. sort of be strengthened that Spider-Man needs Venom and Mr. Fantastic needs Doctor Doom. And so Queen Cat, the hero, could have Black Cat as her foil. And and that would be the the that could be part of her identity. It doesn't have to weaken her identity. Yeah. And then it's it sort of ends with, you know, Black Cat lead, leaving those words of guidance for Queen Cat, which is interesting. It's a Black Cat comic. I liked it. It it was a neat way to cover uh, some of the heist aspects that Black Cat does. It was once again telling it through the eyes of someone watching her at work, which is a, how a lot of people were introduced to Black Cat. We we saw Spidey hanging out, looking through windows, and just kind of gawking at the audacity of this thief. Yeah. And the only difference between Queen Cat and Spidey is Queen Cat doesn't think Felicia's cute, or. Uh, we don't know that yet, but, but no, it was a, it was a decent enough issue. I liked the pieces at the end with black cat and queen cat. I did feel that sort of the, the, the overrunning arc of queen cat wanting to be a hero and not knowing who she was made a lot of sense. It was fine, but I don't have a lot of familiarity with the character as the hob hero. Yeah. And I can't tell if they're trying to set me up to be on board with a Queen Cat miniseries later next year or something like that. Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Or, you know, an ar- another arc or something like that. Mm-hmm. And despite the fact that it would be totally different, and she's already in Iron Man, between a Black Cat series and a much-needed, I think, I could do with some more Hellcat in my life. I, I don't know that Queen Cat has a place in the terms of how many cat heroes I, I need to buy into, but right. yeah. <laughs> but I had a good time with it. I gave it a I gave it a seven out of ten. Nice. Yeah. No. I uh, this this issue was fun. I think I think it probably would have made a little more sense if I had been following the Black Cat series up until this point. So I had a little bit of catching up to do, and I didn't realize it was the first issue was like a King and Black tie in. So it just it kind of threw me at first, but yeah, I, I I like you. I'm not that familiar with the Queen Cat character, but I guess it was kind of interesting to see her kind of trying to decide what she wants to be, you know, kind of her back and forth with Felicia. So yeah, it was it was it was pretty interesting. I didn't love the art. I thought it was a little scratchy in some places, and I don't know how much the color is working in, in others, but. Overall, I'd say it was you know, a solid enough issue. So I gave this one a 6 out of 10. Awesome. And now, leaving New York, let's head over to the vault uh-huh. with issue X-Men number 19 by writer Jonathan Hickman himself and artist Mahmoud Asrar. Mm-hmm. Color by Sunny Go and lettering by Clayton Cowles. And I'll pass it over to Brandon for the summary. My pleasure. So this is part two of Escape from the Vaults, featuring Sink, uh, Darwin, and everyone's favorite Wolverine, Laura Kinney. And 
This issue picks up after the last one where uh, one of the children of the vault had basically detonated after uh, our three X-Men had kind of headed off the children of the vaults and put each of them down. Sink is basically narrating his experiences, his perceptions of what it was like to spend all that time in the vault. And so throughout the issue, we're also given a timeline just of how things actually went down and you know, the number of times that they tried to hide from the children of the vault and the number of times that they tried to break into the city where they could actually see, you know, where the children would sleep and where the children would rest and recover. And so by that point, uh, as they say, by the end of the sixth cycles where they kind of, you know, the city would rebuild itself and reshape and reform and the children of the vaults would basically, you know, regrow and redevelop themselves. They finally understand what the children actually are. But before they're able to get, you know, a full view, they're chased out by one of the children, Madre, who basically guards the children while they sleep. And so before, you know, they're able to clear the city, they basically need to cause a diversion. So that's when they cut off Darwin's arm uh, because... I guess at some point he had kind of adapted his body with explosives because we see like this blue growth on his back that basically allows his body to act as explosives, which he uses when they cut off his arm and they blow up part of the city as a way to kind of escape and continue to be on the run. But that's kind of when they they uh, are on the run for a little bit more and then they break into the city one more time to really get the full picture on what the vault is, because they, they explained basically that they had gotten an understanding, but this is the first time that we actually see what the understanding is, and that the first time the X-Men encounter the children of the vault, uh, and this is kind of a deep cut, but not, not that old, where I believe it was Rogue's team back in like 2006 had first encountered the children of the vault, who were basically chasing Sabretooth, because he had discovered their existence before they were supposed to, you know, uh, leave the actual vault itself. But Rogue see them, and so they kind of went back to the vaults to redevelop themselves. And by the time that they were ready to go out into the world, they were captured by Orcus and experimented on uh, to basically act as, as weapons in case they needed to use them against Krakoa. But they were able to escape from Orcus with the help of X-Men, uh, which is uh, it was a nice callback to the first issue of X-Men, where they're actually at that Orcus base. And they returned to the vault for one final upgrade. But yeah, basically, I guess in this sense, the idea, the purpose of the children of vault, of the vault, is to be kind of like this this optimum uh, generation, where they'll, they'll be ready to inhabit the world when the time is right. But they've constantly been going up against people, and so they've had to consistently evolve. So they finally reach their, as they call it, the third and final generation and are, are able to able to finally be ready to, to take over the world. But we flash forward, I guess, to a hundred years where Laura, Sink, and Darwin are still still in the vault and still trying to find a way to escape and basically get the information they learned about the children of the vault back to Professor X. And that is the point where, after trying to storm the city uh, and try and find a way to escape, 
a couple of them are captured and imprisoned and held captive and sink uh is basically forced to kind of find a way to escape and they eventually do or he eventually does uh, and is able to free Laura but is not able to free uh Darwin who has basically been experimented on over the course of those many years and was used as a detonation device within the city but that's basically when as the city is beginning to detonate Laura and uh Sink try and make their escape and they basically try and run through the disruption field that is like right outside where the vault is but it basically shreds all the clothing and hair on their body and is extremely painful and Mm -hmm. basically nullifies their powers which is unfortunate because the children of the vault are right behind them and pursuing them as they try to escape so basically one of them knows that they have to make the sacrifice laura decides it's her but they know that someone has to get the information to professor x so sink is able to escape and send one final message to Professor X before he is uh, killed by the children in the vault, but thankfully he was able to get the, the information to Professor X just in time so that when he's resurrected, he still has the memories of you know everything that happened. And really this issue kind of focuses on uh, Sink's understanding of, of, I guess, love in a sense. Uh, that's, that's a lot of what he talks about and what forever means and that sort of thing. And so basically the issue ends with, you know, Sink and Laura and the rest of them being resurrected and him kind of contemplating, you know, how do you tell someone who doesn't remember having spent, you know, over 200, I think it was, years inside a vault? How do you communicate love to that person? And, you know, he's basically just, he sees her kind of... uh pop her claws a little bit in the same way that she did in the last issue and he's just like oh, it's it's all going to be okay but yeah I thought this was a really excellent close to this two-parter and explored the nature of the children of the, in the vault, children of the vault in a way that I think just really does them service because I, I was fortunate enough to go back and read the run where the children of the vault first appeared, uh, a story called X-Men Supernovas and I always felt that they were an interesting concept, but they hadn't really been developed enough to the point where they could be like a major X-Men villain. But I, I like how Jonathan Hickman is taking the opportunity to kind of slow down and explore what the nature of the vault and what the nature of the children is, why exactly they exist, and what their uh, goals of evolution have been. And then I think really just this, I guess, odyssey of uh, Sink, Darwin, and, uh, and Laura was particularly fascinating. So there was just a lot that I loved about it. And then I thought the art by Mahmoud Azra was, was really great, just as much as the last issue. So, yeah, I gave this one a 9 out of 10. I was very satisfied with it. And uh, X-Men is a series that really hasn't disappointed for me, at least not too much yet. So I'm always looking forward to what comes next. Awesome. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. I felt like this was a great little two-parter into The Children of the Vault. I loved right from the beginning when they created sort of the, the vault team, the surgical mm-hmm. strike team of Darwin, Sink, and uh, Wolverine. Mm-hmm. And, you know, explained like why the three of them together yeah. were really the best option to go into there. 
I, I liked it and I was super into it. And then learning a bit more about the vault was really cool, especially because I think a big part of what makes uh, the current era of the X-Men so engaging to me mm-hmm. is, you know, we have established this new world order for mutants. Yeah. And it was, and, and seeing where all the old enemies of X-Men fall into this new world order, I think is an important place to figure out where we're going to go forward. And the children in the vault, despite being sort of a not super explored villain from the past, like I think they have a, a an important seat at the table yeah. as sort of being very distant, but very closely tied to what, with what makes the mutants different and their antagonism towards Krakoa is probably going to be explored more. Oh yeah. Yeah. Especially with like that, uh, you know, technological apocalyptic feature that we were shown in the powers of 10. So, and so with that, I really enjoyed this and I really enjoyed, you know, that last bit of, you know, of knowing that Laura and Darwin don't remember what happened and sync does he remembers 200 years yeah of time with laura and darwin he remembers what happened he remembers the truth and like sort of him knowing that like what he understands happened will never be shared between the two people he experienced it with yeah which is crazy which yeah it's so crazy and I was, I was like really into it. And I'm like, okay, yeah. I, I really like this story. So I, I also gave it a nine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And no, I was just, I was, uh, yeah, I was, I'm just, I'm fascinated by, and I think this was one of the things that I absolutely loved about the, the Jonathan Hickman main X-Men series, not even just House of X and Powers of 10, because what I've noticed, and I, and I wondered if anyone else felt this way, is that it's not really writing in arcs. It's almost like every single issue offers a window into some kind of mutant on Krakoa. And I think that it works really well when you have so many different mutants that have called themselves X-Men at one point or another. I think the only really recurring character that you see is probably Cyclops. But other than that, you know, there have been issues that focus on Magneto and... There was one that focused on Vulcan and Mystique, Nightcrawler. So I like that it's giving the opportunity to basically slow down and focus on just like a select group or even sometimes just one mutant and really giving them a sense of purpose in the new Krakoan age. So I think that's that's why this two-parter really was working for me because, like you said, it built on the team they had established to go into the vault in issue five and really gave the the story some some depth and some weight emotionally and 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 definitely physically considering all that they went through so yeah i really enjoyed it awesome all right up next we have beta ray bill number one by with writing and art by daniel warren johnson color by mike spicer and lettering by joe sabino with daniel warren johnson Beta Ray Bill number one starts our new series on Beta Ray Bill with him sort of feeling his life as now that Odin's gone and Thor is the all father or 
the, the leader of Asgard, whatever you want to call it. Mm. And Thor has made him the Asgard Lord of War. And he, but he no longer has uh, Stormbreaker. Mm. And how that's affecting him. And it, it's showing us flashbacks to his undergoing of the process to become Beta Ray Bill when he was just a little Corbinite kid. Uh, and him meeting his his AI co-pilot, for lack of a better word. Mm-hmm. And so it has those flashbacks mixed in with a null controlled Fin Fang Foom <laughs> attacking Asgard. Yeah. And uh, Bill rallies the, the troops and fights against Fing Fang Foom. And we get this, this really cool, like back and forth. And I, I've always been partial to these kind of fights in superheroes because they're, because they are rare, but where, where both forces have the power to just whip the other one around. Like it's nothing. Oh yeah. But, and, but that's the type of fight that really like sinks in, you know, Foom just, backhands bill and he goes flying and then bill grabs him and flips him over himself. Like he was throwing around a sack of flour. Like both of them have the strength to just give each other like a licking. (laughs) And so we have that fight, but it, but Foom seems to overpower bill. And then Thor shows up the hero of Asgard, our Lord, our savior. And, kicks Foom's butt and saves the day and now all of Asgard gets to rejoice the the day is saved everyone gets to party and Bill is feeling not he's feeling not so good about all this yeah, yeah he appreciated yeah he is he he feels like less of a person now that Thor was the one who took away Stormbreaker who took away the thing that made him even though he is incredibly powerful still mm-hmm. he is missing the the artifact that made him worthy the the piece of himself that made him what he believed truly great yeah. and this is also reflected in his his own physical appearance as as we see that you know he is, he's having trouble uh with Sif who he has formed a relationship with because without Stormbreaker, he's not able to assume his his Corbinite form. Uh, so he's he's not able to look not like a horse demon, and and that's affecting him. He he's not able to look in the mirror and see someone that he wants to look like. He's not, and he's not able to receive all the gifts that come with being this hero who he's seeing. So he he's losing a bit of himself. And in the end, he decides to uh, decides to leave Asgard to find Odin to to get a new Stormbreaker uh, to to hopefully find a way to be worthy again. Yeah, because he's not feeling it, mm-hmm. and 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 that's the the first entrance in this issue. And I gotta say, I I, I had a good time with it. I I like Beta Ray Bill. And I like him a lot as sort of this character in between 
places. Like, he's not an Asgardian, and he wasn't an Asgardian for so long. And now to have him rolled into Asgard but still not feel Asgardian is exactly where I, as a reader, see him. He's always been worthy. He's always been, like, worthy of being in Asgard. But he's always had another place out there. Yeah. And him feeling out of sorts in the place that he's been given and deciding to go on this quest to find Odin, I think is going to be really interesting. I I liked what this did. I liked his fight against Fin Fang Foom. I gave this issue an 8.25 out of 10. Yeah, I, I, I love this issue. I, I, I'm i such a huge fan of Daniel Warren Johnson. And to see him do a Beta Ray Bill series, which was like the perfect fit for him like i i can't think of any other marvel character that he would be better suited for except maybe i don't know wolverine or something but yeah it was just it was it was such a phenomenal read art wise i i just i I couldn't give it enough praise which i think was the thing that captured my attention but even in terms of the story i think it's an interesting exploration of beta ray bill kind of having to live under the shadow of Thor. And, you know, obviously he's had adventures of his own in the past, but he's kind of always had to deal with being, you know, Thor's kind of second, second in command, Thor's other brother, just kind of off to the side. And it'll be interesting to see him strike out on his own, especially having spent so much time on Asgard recently, because Bill, like you said, had kind of always been on the outside. He'd been with the Guardians for a little bit, but he'd never been you know, true Asgardian. He'd never really spent Mm -hmm. time in Valhalla. But now to see him kind of reflecting on his place there and feeling like he's in the shadow of Thor and especially after the fight with uh, Fing Fang Foom, basically seeing Thor like take all the credit is just, it's kind of heartbreaking for him. And I think that's one of the things that Daniel Warren Johnson is so phenomenal at. It's the big, crazy action that he's able to bring. But even sometimes the more quiet moments, there's so many panels where it's, you know, you can see kind of the somberness in Bill's face each time he kind of has to go up against Thor, has to reflect on current events. So it's just, it's really phenomenal. I, I gave this one a 9 uh, out of 10. I'd probably give this one a 9.5 on a really, really good day. But I just, I had such a great time reading it. So excited for the series. It did not disappoint at all. And I think... If you're on the fence about picking this up, definitely pick it up because it's mm-hmm. it's amazing story, amazing art all around. Just just a great book. So yeah, no, I I definitely agree. It's an outstanding pickup. So you can't go wrong with this one. Oh yeah. Next on our list, this one is from last week. We've got a an honorable mention that we we wanted to shout out when we. Uh, didn't get a chance to cover it last week with Guardians of the Galaxy issue number 12 by writer Al Ewing, artist Juan Cabal, color by Federico Blee, and lettering by Corey Pettit. Uh, Brandon, because this one's last week, I don't know if you want to do a full summary on it or what, but I will I will pass it over to you to introduce uh, where we're at with the Guardians right now. Yeah, I can give it a quick breakdown. So if you've been following the Guardians so far, you know that in issue 11, we had the return of the Olympians, and issue 12 is kind of the big fight. The second fight, I should say. The third fight, if you're Peter Quill, who had to fight them on, I think the planet was Morneus, after he had died and kind of went on his magical mystery tour. But (laughs) 
basically, yeah, this issue revolves around the Guardians fighting the Olympians on Daedalus V, and really the, the most important things that I would say are covered in this issue is we finally get to see Phylavel and Moondragon reconcile with their relationship, given that Moondragon had fused between the 616 Moondragon and we also get the return of Groot and the reveal that the Prince of Power uh, is actually kind of a fraud in that his power comes from the Power Stone, and I fully expect that to come up later. But, mm. yeah, basically, we see each uh, each member of the Guardians taking down the members of the Olympians in some kind of way, but Quill and the Guardians are basically able to take down each one and really stop Zeus by locking him up in the black hole bullet for the second time. And, you know, Zeus is kind of pontificating about how the Age of Darkness will return at some point, but for now, he's locked away. But the big kind of dramatic reveal towards the end of the issue is that the uh, Galactic Council, who we had met in the previous uh, Empire tie-in issues, or I guess Empire Fallout tie-in issues, where they were basically meeting to kind of figure out, you know, what the hell do we do now, given everything that had happened with the Kree, the Skrulls, and the Kotati. But basically, we see uh, the Super Skrull, Kalert, show up and say, you know, if you guys had failed, we had this armada waiting and ready to take out the, uh, the Olympians, but we just want to let you know that this current system of the Guardians is not going to work. Like, what you're doing right now, it's just not effective, and it's, it's, it's too dangerous. And Nova's kind of <laughs> asking him, saying, like, well, are you shutting us down, or, you know, what are we doing? And uh, Colored is basically saying that, you know, we don't have the resources right now to fund any kind of security group but we do need more, so what can you provide? And that's when we cut to three months later, where we are in a new location called the Persenium, and they receive some kind of urgent alert, and that's when we reveal that the Guardians have basically uh, reassembled themselves into a galactic super team. Uh, and that's leading directly into the relaunch in issue number 13, uh, which we'll pick up with the, the new Guardians in a new, very heroic place uh, in the galaxy. So I really enjoyed this issue. It was a very solid wrap-up to kind of the whole overarching Olympian story that's gone on so far. And it felt like it kind of tied everything together in a nice way, dealing with the Phylavel and Moondragon relationship, letting Hercules kind of get his peace uh, with his father Zeus, kind of explaining where the Prince of Power got his power from, allowing Groot to return, and really just showcasing more of this, like, space hippie, Peter Quill's new power and all that stuff. So I had a really fun time with it, and I gave it an 8 out of 10. And there's some really amazing panels uh, in terms of visuals here. I think one of them is Athena, and she's kind of, like, looking at all the different outcomes and all the different battles as they're happening and it's just this amazing double page spread of her just kind of looking at all the eventualities and it's like this web in the background but yeah no i had a really great time reading it so i definitely enjoyed it but yeah i gave it an, an eight out of ten mm -hmm. i really liked it i've been a fan of this guardians run 
and I am excited for sort of the 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 new roster slash new look on the Guardians that oh, yeah. they've been teasing for a while. And I got to say, I gave this one an 8 out of 10 also because this is, at the very least, a really good, exciting closure to a lot of the threads that they've had going on so far. Yeah. It, it closes up the Olympians. It closes up Phyla. It closes up the Prince of Power. It closes up, sorry, Phyla and Moondragon. Mm. And it it ties a nice bow on a lot of what they had introduced and gets us ready for a, a whole new look at the guardians starting with the next issue. Oh, so, yeah. and while this isn't anything like truly heart wrenching or breathtaking, the, the art is nice and beautiful. The writing is good. The action is fun. And if you, if you've been reading the guardians this far, don't miss out on this one. It's, Oh yeah. It, and it's a, Sorry, go ahead. Oh, yeah. No, no, you're good. Yeah, it's a really good installment, and it's a really good way to wrap up everything we've worked on, uh, built like everything Marvel has worked on building up in the past year. So so I'm here for this one. I gave it an 8 out of 10. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and if you're looking for a good entry point into the Guardians, I would definitely say that the next issue should be a really great place to start because it's kind of a, a soft relaunch of the team given that they're... They're basically now working with the Galactic Council as, like, the premier super team of space. The Avengers of space, basically. So, if you're looking for a good place to start, I would say Guardians of the Galaxy number 13 is a, is a great way to jump on. But I would encourage you to go back and read the first 12 issues, because they are they're definitely phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I also think it's just so funny that it has taken this long for anyone to say, hey, what if we legitimize the Guardians? Yeah. Well, they, they had a brief little point where they were kind of like that. They, were, they weren't exactly legitimate, but they were working very closely with the, the previous Galactic Council. But yeah, basically ever since their old base on Nowhere got destroyed, they, they've kind of just been like space outlaws <laughs> and on the run. So, so yeah, it'll, it'll be nice to see them kind of have a more, like you said, legitimate role in the, in the Galactic scene. Mm-hmm. All right. Wrapping up with the Guardians, we're now going into our lightning review section. This is our new segment where we're just going to spend a bite-sized amount of time uh, covering off a few of the other issues we read this week and giving you a quick, uh, quick score so you know whether or not it's something for you to look at. Uh, kicking off our lightning reviews, Brandon, I'm going to hand you over uh, X-Men Legends number two. All right, X-Men Legends number two, lightning round. So, uh, Corsair has killed Adam X. This issue basically revolves around the exploration of Adam X, who he is, how he came to be, and the fact that he is prophesized to be this big savior of the Shi'ar Empire, basically because of his power. They fight off Eric the Red and his acolytes, uh, given that he was basically a follower of the previous Shi'ar Emperor, and he wants to use uh, Adam X to bring back that one, but they stop Eric the Red, they bring him to justice before uh, Empress Naramani, uh, and everyone gets their memories conveniently wiped at the end, so they have no memory of the fact that Adam <laughs> X is actually one of the Summers brothers. Wow. What a great way to tie that all up. Adam returns to farm life, and that's it. Oh, and and then there's a little tease of, I guess, Sinister and someone else looking 
uh, into the background with the knowledge that Adam is a Summers brother, but they don't remember that. So yeah, that's that's your issue. It was fine. It wasn't particularly stand out in any way. Uh, it was kind of fun. If you're a fan of the old X-Men, I feel like you might like this if you're familiar with 90s X-Men stuff. I am not incredibly familiar with it, so this was just kind of an interesting throwback for me. Uh, a solid two-parter, but, you know, nothing, nothing particularly great in any way. I guess just the reveal that, you know, Adam X is a Summers brother, but that doesn't really mean anything if no one remembers it, so, uh, <laughs> there you go. But yeah, I gave this issue a 6.5 out of 10. Yeah, I also gave it a 6.5 out of 10. I I found that it was a, a fun closure, but it was honestly the the legends placing it, you know, after X-Men or in like 1991 in the timeline yeah. and then all their memories being conveniently erased. I don't feel like it's going to be super impactful even with that uh Mr. Sinister tease at the end. Yeah. I don't see them pulling a lot out of on this one. Oh yeah, no, not at all. All right, moving right along to the King in Black tie-in Ghost Rider number one. Uh, this issue is uh, features our, you know, our current King of Hell, Johnny Blaze, ro- rolling through the city with Mephisto dragging behind him as Null's dragons roll in and start attacking. And he has to really quickly figure out how to deal with that when he is trying to also deal with Lilith, who has escaped from hell and is trying to usurp him from the throne while he has also usurped Mephisto from the throne. And in trying to fight off some of the dragons, he does uh, some experimenting with how his damnation stare works against the dragons and gets middling results. And then he meets up with Danny Ketch and his new team, uh, who are also working to stop Lilith. Danny Ketch is now the Death Rider, uh, which I believe is the first appearance of this new persona for Danny. Oh, yeah. And he's with the Caretaker and Blackheart, of all people, because they also oppose Lilith. And they have a bit of a romp through the city as Mephisto escapes and tries to get back to hell and... His demons are working, uh, are running around looking for him. And so we fight some null demons, some uh, null dragons, some demons. And at the end of it, the resolution is that the easiest way to stop Lilith is to put Mephisto back on the throne. So they do. And it ends with Mephisto taking the throne and Lilith still out there and needing to be stopped. And I gave this issue, honestly... As much as I like, you know, the, the demonic imagery and stuff that Ghost Rider comes with, this issue didn't really do it for me. And it, as a King and Black tie in, I felt weakened it. Yeah. Yeah. It but really it didn't feel like it was necessary to King and Black at all. No, it really wasn't. And I think the worst part of it for me is it comes between what sounds like two parts of a Ghost Rider story yeah. that I haven't like paid enough attention to. But if the last issue you read of Ghost Rider, he's King of Hell, and you don't pick up this one shot, it you're going to miss out on why he's not the King of Hell anymore. So it's a weird place for them to do that changeover of plot, because the next time we come back to Ghost Rider, it's going to be a whole new bit, yeah. I think, which I'm not all the way on board with. You know, I, I, 
I give these one shots some grief sometimes because usually nothing important happens. But then when something important happens, it doesn't feel good to have to pick up this weird little one shot. Yeah. Otherwise, you miss it. So I, I don't know what I want these one shots to be. So I know that's that's on me as a reader. But it felt, I don't know, kind of forgettable as a King in Black tie-in and not extremely entertaining as a Ghostwriter comic for the amount of plot that they were trying to cram into it yeah. in terms of dramatic changeover. Blackheart and Mephisto are back on the throne, all kinds of stuff in there. I gave it a 6 out of 10. Yeah, yeah no, I... I... I was probably one of 10 people that actually read the new Ghost Rider series back in 2019 <laughs> uh, when that got canceled due to just COVID basically annihilating a lot of books. So I was familiar with a lot of this stuff, particularly like Danny and Johnny's kind of new relationship because that whole series had a plot where Johnny was the king of hell, but he was kind of losing control because he was trying to capture demons and drag them back to hell, and he was just getting more and more evil. And they basically needed Danny to become the uh, the spirit of... Oh God, how am I forgetting the name? What was it? The... Is it the, the spirit of damnation or something like that i, I yeah i don't wish remember. i could remember yeah but yeah basically so, so that's where that whole thing comes from but so yeah this this issue was kind of like a fun throwback to that series for me but you know it wasn't important to king black at all so that just kind of threw me off and every time that they would try and connect it it just felt kind of pointless and it clearly felt like they wanted to focus more on that Mephisto King of Hell angle than anything else. So kind of I was more focused on that and even though I enjoyed that stuff, it just it felt pointless to have it tie into King of Black. You might as well just have this issue be another issue of the Ghost Rider series instead of canceling it. But anyway. Yeah, I, I didn't hate this issue. I, I enjoyed the art, particularly in some places, but yeah, I think it just it its score was weakened by the fact that they were trying to tie it into King and Black at all. It just felt really pointless. So I gave this one a 7 out of 10. Not too bad. All right. And for our last lightning review, I will pass it over to you for U.S. Agent number 4. All right. U.S. Agent number 4 picks up from the last issue. Lamar Hoskins, Battlestar, got his ass kicked by the new U.S. Agent while... Uh, John Walker, the former U.S. agent, was thrown off of the helicarrier by his sister and was basically falling to his death. And the issue is just a bunch of reveals, essentially. We finally get information as to how Walker lost his job, how the new U.S. agent, I guess, was trained, who this mysterious Maury guy may or may not be. No one's entirely sure and how the new U.S. agent was able to work with uh, John's sister, uh, Katie. So, you know, it was, it was pretty interesting. I think it kind of lost me on that final page. I wasn't sure if that was the... Throughout the series, they've been talking about the secret beneath this coal mining town, a frame. And I, I wasn't really sure what it was. I thought it was like some kind of power or something, but I... It sounds like maybe this dragon might be the big thing that was under it. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I hope that's not the case because that would be really... But yeah, for me, it, it, it worked pretty well in some places. I think I'm just I'm interested in 
you know, kind of the whole story with the new U.S. agent basically trying to protect this base and John having to deal with his sister kind of protecting it blindly and that whole thing. So it worked in some places, was a little weird in others, and that's kind of how I felt about the art, where the art definitely felt like it worked in a lot of places and not so much in some of the some of the other places. So I ended up giving this one a 6.5 out of 10. Awesome. Yeah, I gave this one a 7 out of 10. I found that the parts of it that I liked, I really did enjoy. But then some of the framing of it and how it jumped around yeah. didn't, didn't work as well for me. And some of the art didn't work for me. And for the last shot, I believe they, they made up some word of like that the next issue is a kai kaiju pendis or something <laughs> type yeah, I issue that. i i gotta say with that with that final shot of that dragon that kaiju it wasn't impressive looking I, yeah. I i i didn't know what to feel about the kaiju so it didn't work across the board uh yeah so i gave it a seven out of ten mm. all right uh and now for our top three, what would you say were your top three and favorite moment of the week, Brandon? Coming in at number three, this was tough because I had some issues that I really, really liked this week. But coming in at number three, I had Avengers Curse the Man-Thing. I, I, like I said, I had a lot of fun with it, more than I was expecting. And it just felt like a really fun Avengers team-up. And I really enjoyed the art. Coming in at number two... I had uh, Beta Ray Bill, excellent, excellent first issue. I'm super pumped for Daniel Warren Johnson, super pumped for the series, so it hasn't let me down, and I hope it doesn't anytime soon. Uh, and at number one, I had X-Men number 19, just a phenomenal issue, uh, particularly with Sink and Laura, and I just I can't wait for the next issue. Uh, and my favorite moment of the week, I think, definitely has to go to uh, Beta Ray Bill in that kind of shot of him staring down Fin Fang Foom. Uh, it mm-hmm. was just excellently drawn. And I, I just, I mean, there are so many panels in this book that I could give best panel of the week to. But yeah, it was just, it was just really great. And you really get the, the feeling of the depth and the size of, of Foom as he's kind of like leering over Beta Ray Bill. So yeah, that was that was uh, those were my picks for the week. My top three. I've got at number one. I've got X Men. At number two, I've got Beta Ray Bill. And at number three, I have Guardians of the Galaxy, which was last week. So I also have Silk. Yeah. And unfortunately, you just took my favorite panel of the week. Oh, so I'm, so I'm sorry. frantically trying to oh. <laughs> trying to remember another one that I really like. But that was the one I had wrote down here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just loved. Bill versus Foom. I, I I'm just going to echo your sentiment. I'm just going to piggyback on that one. And that I really, I thought that that fight and that panel especially was just a, a great way to show the scale of this fight. Yeah. And that, you know, Bill almost dealt with the scale of that fight. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, yeah. which is just such a great moment. Mm-hmm. And even though that this week was filled with mostly good issues, it's uh, there's always some that we have negative things to say about. So now it is time for the biggest thinker. Oh, that's nasty. Uh, so Brandon, what was your biggest stinker this week? 
Uh, my biggest stinker definitely has to go to X-Men Legends number two. Kind of a wash conclusion. Like, it just... It, it, it basically just said everything that you just read doesn't matter because no one remembers it, which just felt like such a, a cheesy cop-out. Like, yes, you, the reader, are aware that Adam X is a Summer's brother, but no one else remembers it and no one else is going to acknowledge it, which conveniently works because no one else has acknowledged it for 20 years, so I guess that's just how we have to tie it all together. But even if I like the art in some places, I, I definitely feel that the art was not as strong in some other places. There was some great action in it, but outside of that, nothing particularly memorable about this two-parter other than just, you know, a very basic, solid story, uh, and that's about it. But yeah, no, my biggest sticker for this week has to go to X-Men Legends number two. Sorry. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to echo that one. Uh, as pretty close. I gave my biggest stinker to Ghost Rider because uh-huh. I just felt that the issue lacked impact for the story it was trying to tell. I feel like Johnny stepping down and giving the throne back to Mephisto could have been an interesting arc if they hadn't canceled Ghost Rider's arc yeah. last year. And that they, they rushed it through and tied it into King and Black and none of it really felt like it landed or mattered. Yeah. And the next time we get a Ghost Rider number one, it's probably going to have to spend some time retroactively reclaiming stuff from the end of the last series and from this one shot to make sure that everyone's on the same page. So I just felt like it was sort of a a disappointing way to tie in together some stories that could be told better. Yeah. yeah, Especially something as as big a deal as putting Mephisto back on the throne. To cram that all in one issue, it's just, yeah, it doesn't work. Yeah, and I know some comic readers, the next time they read that Mephisto's on the throne, they're going to act like, oh yeah, nothing's changed, because they didn't. They probably didn't read the last Ghost Rider arc, because like you said, not a lot of people did. Yeah. But it's, uh, I don't know, it's, it's disheartening when they cram something like that in, and it ends up being very much one of those sitcom, and everything is back to normal by the end of it moments. Yeah, no, it's clear that, that they just wanted to resolve some of the dangling threads from the actual Ghost Rider series. This was apparently the only way they could do it. Mm -hmm. All right. And that's the show. Come back next week for more Marvel Comics talk. Uh, We're excited to see you there. And as always, you amazing humans out there, thank you so much for listening. You're the reason we do this. Visit campsite.bio slash notarobotcomics to hear all our episodes on nearly any podcast platform and patreon.com slash notarobotpodcasts for the exclusive content that we make for our patrons from all our offerings, Kids Corner, Real Talk, Movies, TV, and more. Again, starting at just $1 a month. Visit notarobotpodcast.com and that will take you everywhere you need to go for everything Not A Robot. With that, there's only one way we say goodbye around here. Until next time, be good to each other, and don't be a robot. Yes.